Well, good morning. It is so great to see you, whether you are here in person or watching online today. We are honored to have you with us on this journey. So before we get started, I should probably introduce myself. My name is Drew Brennan, and I am married to this amazing lady. So, oh yeah. <laughs> so this is Hannah Brennan. Uh, she is in charge of discipleship and groups here at Keystone. So if you are looking to connect or to grow in your faith, see Hannah after the service or connect with her online. Now, when I'm not in my primary role as Hannah's husband, I also have another job. And I brought a few pictures of what I do Monday through Friday, a lot of weekends as well. So this is a picture of me. I am a chaplain in the Michigan National Guard. I serve full-time as the state support chaplain. And I am honored to serve the roughly 11,000 men and women that make up the Michigan National Guard. So here's a picture of me, as my wife might say, doing chaplain-y things. Well, thank you. Yeah, appreciate it. I, I'm not asking for applause, but appreciate it. Now, now, since I mentioned my military title, and I showed you pictures of myself in a military uniform, well, there's something called Army Attorneys. And they told me that I need to put this disclaimer up. So... I will read the disclaimer. The views presented today are those of the speaker, this guy, and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense, the Michigan National Guard, or its components. So thank you, lawyers. Now, I'm, this is serious, but I'm actually kind of making fun of attorneys as well. But I get to do that, and you know why? Because this guy, don't tell anyone, I'm also an attorney. So, so I, I, get, I, get, I get to make those jokes. So... Today we're continuing in our series called Why Follow? And we're asking this really important question. Why in the 21st century? Why when we see the sometimes harmful, maybe even disgusting things that people that claim to be or maybe are Jesus followers do? Why in the 21st century do we here at Keystone still think that everyone should follow Jesus? And we're going to look at that question from the perspective of a first century Jesus follower named Luke. But before we do that, I'm just going to ask you to give me a little grace and let me tell you a war story, if that's okay. So I'm going to tell you a quick war story, because this month, October of 2022, marks the 10-year anniversary of my return from deployment to Afghanistan. So rewind the clock a little bit further, and it's early 2012. I'm in Afghanistan for just about a week, and I am lost. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. Well, of course you're lost, Drew. It's a new country, strange language. You're with a new military unit. And oh, by the way, you're in a war zone. It's okay if you feel a little bit out of place, right? But that, my friends, is not the kind of loss that I'm talking about. I am talking about the I literally don't know where I am right now. Kind of lost. So let me tell you the story. It goes like this. We arrive in Camp Stone, Afghanistan, where my unit's going to be headquartered. And Specialist Price and I, Specialist Price is my assistant, our plan is to do worship services on Sundays at Camp Stone. And then we're going to travel throughout this massive region called RC West, or Regional Command West. Our troops are spread throughout this area. It's about the size of Wisconsin. And so the first Monday rolls around, Sunday services went great, we hop on a Black Hawk helicopter, and we fly out to the first outpost. From there, we get in a convoy, and we go out and we start visiting troops. Now the plan is, 
we're out near the border with Iran, and we're going to get picked up by another wonderful Black Hawk helicopter. But as often happens in Afghanistan, this wonderful thing that if you've ever been there, I highly recommend it, if you've ever been there, Afghan dust storms. This massive dust storm blows in. All the flights are grounded. So it's Saturday now, and we're pretty much convinced that we are not getting back to Camp Stone for Sunday services. When all of a sudden, this young lieutenant rushes up to us and, Chaplain Brennan, Specialist Price, we've got a bird coming in for you in 15 minutes. Grab your stuff. So we scramble. We get all our stuff. Get out to the flight line, and we see, well, we're looking for this nice, high-speed Blackhawk. And instead, we see this guy, Chopper McChopper Face, the flying blue school bus. So we climb in. There's some contract workers, international contract workers that climb in us. And we're flying back. We get over the mountains, a little bit shaky flight. And as we're approaching, as we're about to land, now I've only been in Afghanistan for a week, and I've only been to Camp Stone one time. But as we're about to land, I am smart enough to know that we are not landing in Camp Stone. We are landing in an open, dusty field. So the helicopter lands, and they rush everybody out. And as we're watching Chopper McChopper face fly into the distance, some vehicles come in. They grab the few contract, civilian contract workers, the international contract workers, so none of them spoke English. They grab these people, take them away, and Specialist Price and I are left alone, stranded, and God only knows where, Afghanistan. And did I forget to tell you? I'm a chaplain, and chaplains are non-combatant. So this guy is unarmed, except for these guys right here. Now, there's a lot that I'm not telling you about planning and communication, things that went on to get us to this point. But you need to know that in this moment, it seemed like an eternity. I'm in Afghanistan for a week, and I feel completely lost. Can you imagine what I'm asking myself at this point? What are you doing with your life? You were weeks away from getting out of the army. You have a loving family, a beautiful wife, great friends, and a job in a law firm downtown. And now... You're lost in Afghanistan. Now, we'd probably only been there for a minute or two, but again, it seemed like an eternity. When I look off in the distance, and I see this pickup truck driving at a very fast pace toward us. Now, if you're in Afghanistan and you see a truck driving fast at you, there's a couple of different things that can happen here. But I'm here today, so it was a good thing. Can I just tell you that I have never been happier in my life to see a couple of smiling, bearded American dudes. What a relief. I'm telling you, it felt awful, that feeling of being lost. But it also felt really amazing to be found. And that's what we're talking about today. So first century Jesus follower Luke starts his story this way. The tax collectors and sinners... They were gathered around to hear Jesus. In only a few words, there is a ton of stuff packed into this because tax collectors and sinners, these people are outcasts. Nobody wants to be around them. In fact, they are probably 
not even allowed to worship in the temple in Jerusalem. They're nothing like Jesus, and yet they like Jesus. And Jesus, he likes them back. He's already starting the beginning of the story to break down categories, and he continues. But the Pharisees and the teachers of law, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. It's as if the Pharisees are saying, this Jesus guy, there is no way that this dude's from God. Because if he was from God, they would feel condemned by him just like they feel condemned by us. They would avoid him, or he would avoid them, just like they avoid us. There's something radically different with the way that Jesus is interacting with these people that are otherwise social outcasts. Now, it's really easy here to beat up on the first century religious leaders. Right? We could just go all day about how Jesus was such a radical change. But I want instead to introduce you to a childhood friend of mine. So Keystone friends, this is my childhood friend, Mr. Yuck. Does anybody remember Mr. Yuck? So Mr. Yuck is a 1970s, show my age here, Mr. Yuck is a 1970s campaign. And the whole purpose of the campaign is to keep little kids like Drew in the 1970s from drinking things like Goo Gone or eating rat poison or other things around the house that could be toxic for kids. So my mom, she gets this pack of Mr. Yuck stickers. And what does she do? She starts placing them on stuff all over the house. Bleach bottle, Mr. Yuck sticker. Hydrogen peroxide bottle, Mr. Yuck sticker. Paint thinner, Mr. Yuck sticker. Zucchini. <laughs> I wish, right? I hated zucchini as a kid. But my point is that we tend to do this walking through life. We tend to walk through life putting Mr. Yuck stickers on things. UPenn psychologist Paul Rosen, who happens to be apparently the world's leading expert in disgust. I didn't know there was such a thing. Somebody laughed. I thought that was Joe Rogan, but apparently it's Paul Rosen. So Paul Rosen says it like this. He says, disgust develops from a system to protect the body from harm to or into a system to protect the soul from harm. So it's like we humans. We get this toolkit of disgust. And we initially start labeling disgusting things with disgust labels to stay away from them. But eventually, we turn to people that we think can harm us or harm our soul and we start labeling them. Because after all, if you're like me, it sure is a lot harder to put a sticker on a person than to attach a sticker to a behavior. And so we walk through life putting these disgust stickers on people that we think might harm us. But the real problem comes when we take that tendency of our own and we project that onto God. And we start to envision this deity who sits up in heaven and pulls out the Mr. Yuck pad. And what does God start to do? Starts to attach it to people or groups of people. Sinner, Mr. Yuck sticker. 
Tax collectors? Two Mr. Yuck stickers. Annoying coworker? You get a Mr. Yuck sticker. Neighbor with the political signs in your yard? It's at least two Mr. Yuck stickers. But then we do something as much or perhaps even more damaging. We then envision a God who not only puts that Mr. Yuck sticker on others, but places that same sticker on us, on our forehead. And so it's like we walk through the world looking at things from one of two perspectives. Maybe on one hand, we're self-righteous and moralistic, placing Mr. Yuck stickers on all the people whose views, whose ideas, whose actions don't align with our own. But on the other hand, maybe we're like this guy. When I was a kid, imagine which stickers, when I looked under the cupboard, which bottles was Drew, the five-year-old Drew, most attracted to? The ones without a label? No. It was the Mr. Yuck stickers that I found attractive because there's this weird thing about us as humans. On one hand, we're repelled by disgusting things, but on the other hand, we're also strangely attracted to disgusting things. So perhaps we're over in this category where we walk through life self-righteously, or perhaps we're over here and we tend to be attracted to things that even we think are disgusting. And even though we might believe in God, we have to imagine that we are hopefully, hopelessly distanced from God because we live in the land of the disgusting and we have that label on our forehead. So I'm going to ask you a question, and I just want you to answer this internally right now. When you think of yourself, do you see yourself as more self-righteous or more unrighteous. See, the thing is, we're confident that around here, in this community, there's probably a lot of people that would answer this question either way. In fact, you might even answer the question both ways, depending upon what set of circumstances you're in. Now, Jesus, as Luke sets up the story, is talking to both groups. And so both groups, the unrighteous and the righteous, or the self-righteous and the righteous, are gathered around him. And Luke continues. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? For Jesus' first century hearers, this would have been a rhetorical question. But for you and me, I don't know, what do you do? Do you even notice if you lose a sheep? So Jesus is really helpful and he gives us another story. And he tells us the story of a woman who has 10 coins. And each coin is worth a full day's wage. And when she loses that coin, when she loses one of the coins, what does she do? She cleans the whole house and looks for the coin until she finally finds it. And when she finds it, she rejoices and even tells her friends. Now just in case we still don't get the message, I want to throw a little spin on this or a twist on this. Now imagine... It's your very first job. For some of this, this is quite a long time ago. It's your very first job. At the end of the work week or at the end of the pay period, 
you go to your boss and get an envelope. You take the envelope out to your car, you sit down and you open the envelope and you start counting. 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 $100 bills, 500 Benjamins. I am, ah, yes, you're going to party, right? So you drive home, you're getting out of the car, you go to grab the money, and something seems to be missing, so you count it. 100, 200, 300, yep, only $400. So if you're like me, you start to think through this, and you're like, well, this kind of stinks, but, you know, that missing bill, it was kind of wrinkled. And if I remember right, I think, I think it even had a stain on it. So you just run out of your car with your $400 and have a happy night? No, of course not. What do you do? You start to look beneath the seat. You start to look between the seat. And when you finally find that $100 bill tucked between the car seat and the console, aren't you more excited then than you were when you first opened that envelope? You've got 500 and now you are ready to rock and roll. And so Jesus continues. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And in this context, Jesus' hearers would have understood the word repent to mean to come home. So Jesus tells another story. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of your estate. And so he, divide, he divides the property between them. Now there's a ton, again, going on in the first portion of this passage. First of all, we've got this son who seems to be patiently waiting for his dad to die. And the dad just won't die. So the younger son goes to him, he's like, Dad, give me half the estate. And strangely, even surprisingly, what does the father do? He gives him half of the estate. Now, you probably know the story, at least if you grew up in church, you know the story, right? Things go from bad to worse for this prodigal son. He quickly blows through all of inheritance, the estate that his family had been building over generations, in a matter of days, weeks, or months, wastes it all, and then he finds himself in a famine. To make matters worse, he can no longer care for himself. And the only work that he can find is hiring himself out as a servant, taking care of pigs. And to the first century hearers, this would have been disgusting, right? It's in a Jewish context. And the religious leaders hearing this you know what they're thinking probably, right? This little brat, this younger son is getting exactly what he deserves. But Luke continues. When he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, where in the world am I? What am I doing? Why did I leave my life? It's this moment where the son realizes that he is lost. 
that he's entirely messed up his life. It's this dark, raw, and honest moment in the story. And I want to pause right here. Because my guess is, in a room this large, and for folks watching online, that there's at least one or two of us, probably most of us, if we look back over our present and our past, that have felt this way. When you look in the mirror, you ask yourself, what have I made with my life? Who am I? This is not the person that I envisioned myself being at this stage in my life. And you feel absolutely lost. And if that's you today, we are so glad that you have joined us. Because in the rest of the story, Luke tells us a new way of viewing God in response and in solution to this feeling of loss. So the younger son, he comes up with a plan. And he says to himself this, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. So the son's heading back, and the father in the audience, Jesus' audience, is probably anticipating this reunion, right? And they're imagining how things are going to go when this father sees this kid who has just destroyed the family reputation and the family estate. Jesus is going to show us what God is like and what God likes, though, in the answer. So Luke continues. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with. Now you can only imagine what the audience is thinking at this moment, right? They're reaching into their pocket, getting out the Mr. Yuck pad. Filled with disgust. Filled with anger. Filled with frustration or contempt. Disappointment and embarrassment. But what does Luke tell us at this point? Luke continues. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with what? Compassion for him. And ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The audience at this point would have been stunned. And so was the young son in Jesus' telling. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And it's almost as if the father, the dad when the child returns home, doesn't even hear him. Because the dad turns to his servant and he says this, Quick, bring the best robes and put it on him. Bring a ring and put it on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatty calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he, was found, he is now found. And they began to celebrate. It's like the dad says to him, I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. You were lost to me 
and now you are found. It's as if Jesus is telling us something new about God the Father, about his heavenly Father. That God doesn't see us, that God doesn't see people as good and bad, but instead sees people as treasures, lost or found. But there's another character in this story, the older son who's working in the fields. The older son hears some commotion, and he asks the servant, what is going on? What's all this noise? What sounds like there's a party? And the servant says to him, your brother's come home, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. Are you kidding me? The older son, Luke tells us, is furious and refuses to go to the party. And so the father comes out and pleads with him to come back. But the younger son, excuse me, the older son looks him in the eyes and tells him this. Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him? Dad, this son of yours, he's no brother of mine. He's wasted everything and now he comes home with his tail tucked between his legs and you're going to throw a party for him? He doesn't deserve a party. He doesn't even deserve to be a part of our household. And I think if Jesus would have added a little bit more to his response, he might have said something, or Luke might have had him say something like this. Son, we're not talking about what he deserves. I'm not throwing a party for him because he was bad and now he is good. I'm throwing a party for him because he was lost and now he's found and our relationship is restored. And friends, here's the challenge for you and for me. What if we could change the way that we walk through life? But I don't think we can do it on our own power. I think we do this by first receiving the gracious love of our God as depicted in this story who embraces us with open and loving arms. And then, like God sees us, we can return and extend that grace to the world. So instead of seeing people as trash, we can see them as God views them, as treasure, lost and found. Last thing I want to say here is there's this really cool thing that Brady pointed out to me as I was preparing for this. And it has to do with the word, the verb lost in Greek. Because this story is embedded into the most famous passage in all of Scripture, John 3.16, right? And the Greek word, and I'm going to butcher this, it's been 20 years since I did seminary, so I apologize, my Greek is very rusty, but apolemi. And it goes like this in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not apolemi, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world 
to condemn the world, but to save it through him. Returning back to our parable, the father was willing to give up half of all he owned to maybe, just maybe, restore his relationship with his son. And in a few chapters later in Luke, Jesus is willing to give up everything in order to restore his relationship with you, with me, and with the world. And with that, my friends, we're going to close in prayer. Before we do so, I just want to remind you of a new tradition here at Keystone. If you are here and you are looking for prayer, please come forward at the end of the service to my right, to your left, and there will be friends up here who will pray with you. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the testimony, the story given to us in Luke that helps us to answer the question, why follow? Because, Lord, you do not view the world through the lens of good or bad. Instead, you view us, you view your creation as treasure, and you have given your all to restore that treasure to relationship with you. Lord, we thank you for these things. We thank you for this day. May you go in peace now. God bless you. Have a great week. Take care.